Welcome to the 13th episode of the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute podcast series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare, which will see uniformed soldier or boots on the ground being replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon system, and cyber weapons. My name is Alessandro Arduino, and I will be the co-host for the series along with my colleague, Amim Lutfi. Thank you everyone for joining us today. We're very glad to have with us today, Mr. Jason O'Connor. He's a deputy director, North America with the Global Intergency Security Forum or GISF, an independent peer support network that provides a platform to NGOs around the world to gather and disseminate good practices in security risk management to improve policy and practice. Prior to GIF, Jason worked as a, as a global security advisor for World Vision International. And before that, he's been involved with a range of international organizations, including the UN peacekeeping mission and assistant mission to Kosovo, Iraq, Liberia, Cambodia, South Sudan, as well as OSCE in Kosovo and IOM in Jordan and Liberia. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jason. Jason, in our previous podcast on private military and security company, we discussed a lot about both sides of the coin. One side of the coin, we see accountable private security company being a driving force in protecting individual and infrastructures in high volatile areas. And other side of the coin, we see private military and security company benefiting from diffused instability and uncertainty. So looking at the NGO angle, seldom private security company are perceived, let's say, as a necessary evil. What's your opinion on the interaction between NGO and PSC? Uh, hi, Alex, thanks. Thanks for having me today. Um, so when it comes to the use of private security contractors um, and, and those types of institutions or, or outfits, um, GISF has a guide on this uh, called Engaging Private Security Providers. And this guide is, uh, the aim of this guide is to help our members or NGO, the NGO community uh, determine when is the best time to use these types of uh, services. And if they do need to use them, how to use them, uh, what processes they can use to assess the need and you know, how to pick out those providers. Um, internally, the use of a, of a private security contractor is, uh, is based off of uh, context analysis, um, security risk assessments, um, and other internal processes that might, that might exist. Um, some organizations, uh, for some organizations, this is uh, not something they would, they would use. Um, it goes against their core values, but um, for others, it's a it's, it is a necessity in order to operate in some of these challenging contexts. Um, it is important to consider the, uh, the consequences of working with some, some of these providers. Uh, even if they are good, you have to consider um, the reputational risk that's attached to, to working with these types of groups. Um, you know, if one of these operators was to, you know, be involved in some sort of criminal conduct or um, engage in sexual exploitation and abuse, um, or things like that, that obviously would fall back on, the, on the, uh, the, the NGO that use their services. So it's important to find the right providers to work with in, in the different contexts we operate in. Um, you know, some of the 
some of the ways we can we can uh, we can achieve this is by you know using the international code of conduct for private security providers by you know revisiting that when we're determining who we can work with in these areas, and each organization needs to to do their due diligence. They, they you know and that's you know they can do a series of background checks. They can whatever processes they may have internally for that. Um, you can work with other NGOs. Uh, you can engage the local community to find out what the system or if there's any um, conduct for, uh, with those organizations that would be detrimental. Uh, you can maybe reach out to the UN or you know, other international groups in the area that do similar project work or program work to find out uh, what experiences they have. Um, if it comes to the use of armed guards, it adds even more complexity to the situation. Uh, and for some organizations, like I said already, this is non-negotiable. It goes against their core values and they, and they won't operate in an area that requires them to, do, to, to work with that type of service. But in some contexts, the government may mandate that use uh, of these types of services and, and then it becomes a challenge. Um, but you know, some, I, I won't mention any organizations, but most, many organizations have very, um, let's say deliberate processes in which they, they, they put into play in order to determine whether or not this is the right approach. Uh, and every context is unique and organizations, they have to be thorough and thoughtful when, they, when, when, this, when this type of service comes up. Uh, thank you uh, for firstly for joining us today and for, for that answer. I mean, you mentioned um, that you work with uh, ICOCA and sort of code of conduct. We had, we actually had Jamie Williamson as one of our guests in at the start of this podcast series. And I was wondering if you could just expand a little bit more on the relationship that just has with ICOCA and, and maybe even ISOA, like these bodies that, that charter and set as code of conduct. And, and, and one question in particular, if, you, if I could also ask you to, to elaborate was, I mean, one the, Jamie uh, mentioned that for ICOCA, definitions of things are very important. So they have a very clear cut definition of what counts as, as, as private security, let's say. In your field, I mean, like humanitarianism seems to be the very important or the, def, the, the, the driving term. How do you guys go about defining uh, humanitarian organization? Right, so, well, GISF um, is a partner organi organization with uh, ICOCA. Um, as, uh, not, we're not, I don't believe we're a member, I think we're an, uh, um, a partner. I'm new to GISF, three months on a job. So I'm learning about the organizations that we collaborate with. Um, I could tell you, you know, about GISF. We're, we are a peer-to-peer -peer network of security and safety directors and managers and focal points. And we are member-driven and we all, uh, operate in the same environments uh, for the most part. We have uh, 126 members and all of our members are committed to the same outcome, which is to you know, improve safety and security outcomes and to, um, yeah, to improve safety and security outcomes. And uh, at GISF specifically, we work to facilitate the exchange of ideas with our members, with all the different stakeholders that we, uh, to, that we work with. So not just member NGOs, but also non-member NGOs. Um, including ICOCA, so and as well as the UN and uh, donors and academic institutions, research institutions, and the private sector as well, and all of these different partners that we work with, they basically aim to achieve achieve the same thing, which is you know better outcomes in the in the context where we operate um, to reduce harm to the local communities and the populations that we serve. 
Um, within our membership, we have incredible experience uh, through all the different organizations that we have and the people that we work with. And we try to harness that experience to drive change and to, to achieve better outcomes. Um, you know, some of the products that we produce are done in collaboration with groups like ICOCA and other partners. Um, and we aim to, you know, produce evidence-based research, um, you know, such as guides and papers and case studies that, you know, take some of the information that we get from places like ICOCA. Um, and we also put together forums and workshops and roundtables and webinars and experts and, you know, speakers from ICOCA will show up to those types of events to help uh, provide extra material and, and context. And yeah, so it's, it's a collaborative effort. Uh, when it comes to humanitarian, the definition of humanitarian, uh, we see that as you know, not-for-profit activities that are aimed to improve lives and to reduce suffering. Jason, you just mentioned that, that uh, you have been three months on the job, but I know that you have been involved in the security arena for a while. Before your work with World Vision International as a global security advisor and training, you have two decades of experience working with UN peacekeeping, assistant mission in Kosovo, Iraq, Liberia, Cambodia, South Sudan, Jordan. I think basically you just missed Afghanistan and Syria. Could you briefly trace your working trajectory and how you landed to the Global Interagency Security Forum? Let's say in this respect, do you perceive any substantial difference from traditional security risk management and humanitarian risk management. Uh, thanks, Alex. Um, it, it's been an interesting trajectory to say the least. Um, I guess it starts, you know, I left the military after doing, you know, three years, five years in the military, a um, couple of years reserve, three years in the reg force in Canada. And after that, I decided to go overseas and um, through some networking, I did, you know, I worked in some projects uh, for three years with a project company that did some work in peacekeeping environments in the Balkans. And I saw what, um, you know, all the international organizations were up to and it was, and I took a keen interest in those activities. And uh, I, through my networking, I was able to, um, you know, apply and finally get a, a job with uh, the OSCE in Kosovo. And I worked on election security in the beginning. Um, and then that led to a job in the UN and, you know, I ended up at headquarters, uh, and not such a glamorous job, but it was a great job and doing in the uniform security division in, uh, in New York. Uh, and you know, it wasn't my end goal, but I, it was a very great experience for a couple of years that I was there. And, uh, but my, my aim was to end back uh, to end up in the field again. So uh, I got the opportunity to go to Iraq and, um, once as part of the response team that, uh, went to, to Baghdad when they, after uh, the explosion at the Canal Hotel in 2003, August 19th. And it was a pretty horrific day. Um, and I had a lot of friends there in, in that building at the time. And I was very keen on responding there to assist, uh, you know, to help my colleagues have the opportunity to leave so we could take over for them. Uh, and that just led to a, a series of different peacekeeping missions from there. I didn't go back to headquarters. I wanted to stay in the field. And lots of great experiences working in all those different places that you mentioned already. Um, and yeah, I mean, it kind of, it grows on you for sure. And it's, uh, it's something that you, I mean, you either love it or you hate it. And, and it, it, was, it was a great experience for me to be in the field for so many years. And eventually I had a family 
and uh, it doesn't it doesn't it's not conducive to the family to be always in a field environment. So I was lucky enough to find a position with World Vision for five uh, for the last five and a half years, uh, which was just perfect timing, actually. Um, but that led to an appreciation of the uh, NGO sector because working in the the UN, it's quite different than the approach that the uh, the NGOs um, how, how NGO security works, um, which we're actually going to talk about in a second. Um, but yeah, it, um, and then the opportunity came up to to work with uh, GISF, uh, and it's uh, it's been an it was an exciting opportunity for me, and I, I I couldn't turn it down. So I'm now at GISF, and I'm 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 very excited to be here. It's a great team. Um, when you know when it comes to traditional versus humanitarian security, uh, I think the number one difference that I've realized uh, in the last five years is that NGOs security and safety managers operate off, or NGOs in general, operate off of the principle of acceptance. So the, and this principle requires the, these organizations to reduce threats by engaging with the community and all the different stakeholders that uh, are relevant in the spaces that they operate. Uh, we aim to seek approval um, with the po local populations that we serve. And, some, and, and all the stakeholders that we can possibly, uh, that, where that's reasonable. Uh, it's not, of course, going to be across the board, as we know, uh, because we still have lots of different incidents around the world. Um, but our aim is to engage through acceptance to, with, those, uh, with those populations to lower the threats so that we can continue to deliver programs to those communities. Um, you know, some of the, some of the other key differences um, when you think about traditional security risk management, we think, you know, if you if you think about embassies, for example, or some some of the major installations we have in certain countries, you think about physical security, lots of boundaries, concentric layers of security, um, you know, the five D's, which is detect, deny, delay, deter, defend. Uh, and, you know, those strategies are not they're not entirely applicable to the NGO uh, model, uh, for, especially when you consider that we operate off of acceptance. Nearly all NGO staff are um, field-based, so uh, a bunker-based mentality just doesn't work. So um, our sec humanitarian security risk management is heavily dependent on acceptance, like I've said. And this, you know, we still engage in some of the other processes like context risk ratings, sorry, correction, context risk analysis, uh, security risk assessments. And we do have context risk ratings where we look at the areas that we operate in. Um, and, you know, we try to, div we, we come up with methods to assess risk um, through the security risk assessment process, identify threats, um, develop mitigation measures so that we can, you know, try to balance that out. Uh, but it's lots of planning and tons of collaboration. Um, and to be fair, it, it, you know, it requires a lot of creativity. Uh, it, we can't just say no to the programming. We have to find ways to, to, to get to the field to deliver. Um, so we, and it requires constant monitoring and, and engagement with all of our partners to get it right. You, if I could ask you to maybe say a bit more on this comparison that you said about, you know, you've worked with the UN and now you've shifted the, to the NGO sector. How do they compare? How do both of them compare? And specifically, I was wondering if you could say this, you could, you know, answer this question in regards to a part of the world that we here at the Middle East Institute are very involved with mainly Middle East and North Africa, which are known to be high risk area. In your opinion, are, 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 are the 
NGOs, which you suggest don't have the bunker mentality, are they still very and cautious of the various risks involved in these areas? Yeah, they're super cautious. I mean, uh, it's it, um, it 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 uh, it weighs heavy on every single security and safety manager that I know. Um, you know, and one of the big differences that I may not have mentioned, you know, when we when we talk about these areas we work, especially between you know, the UN and maybe the private sector, one of the key differences is that is the budget. Um, you know, in traditional security risk management, especially in the corporate sector and, and in the UN and many of the UN agencies, um, they're, they're, they're better funded. Um, I, I know maybe some of my colleagues would argue otherwise in those areas, but it's, it's just, I, from what I've seen in my experience, it's just, it, that's just the case. Uh, they, they, we ha we're working with much uh, smaller budgets. Um, so those budget constraints make it a little bit difficult, uh, especially you know to to achieve full staffing for security and safety managers and the personnel you might need to have in place. Um, you know it's harder to conduct training that's necessary to be able to send people to these places, um, and it's also it makes it difficult to procure the uh, the right equipment um, or maybe like not the best but the most suitable in some cases. So um, you know another difference is that. You know, security risk management is, um, you know, for in the private sector, it seems to be, um, you know, a, a cornerstone or more inclusive in the business continuity approach um, than it, you know, for corporations than it would be for the NGO sector. And, you know, and for, for managers in, the, in, in some of these corporate sector, um, you know, security teams, they have, uh, you know, stricter guidelines that they have to adhere to. And there's like key performance indicators that are associated with these tasks that, you know, that might be a result of the litigation culture that exists there where they might, they, they can be brought to court a little bit more easier than you would see maybe. Um, although there have been some court cases in the NGO community, uh, but it, it's, you know, I can see that as maybe one of the differences, but, you know, NGO security managers are quite creative um, and they do an incredible job of keeping their staff safe and their program safe with, uh, you know, with what they have. Um, the ability to adapt in those areas that you've mentioned uh, is is crucial, of course. But you know, a lot of the NGOs that work in those environments have mature security risk management uh, programs in place already. They've been there. They, they might have turnover, but they they've typically been operating there for quite a while. So they've got years of experience, at least institutional years of experience, and uh, lots of established relationships. Um, so you know, with lots of different. Uh, stakeholders in those environments, which that helps facilitate goods, you know, humanitarian security risk management as well. Um, but yes, those these areas you talk about, they uh, they present some unique security risks. Uh, so you know, again, it goes it, it requires lots of planning, lots of context analysis, lots of security risk assessments, contingency planning, and of course training. So and I've and it, when I was working with World Vision, a lot of what we do is you know preparing our staff for for these environments to so that they're better prepared to respond to emergencies. Um, but none of this happens without sufficient funding. So, and we actually, at GISF, we have a, we have a paper on this. It's called uh, the cost of SRM for NGOs. And it's, it's pretty important to be able to communicate this to your organization as a safety and security manager. And it's important for all the stakeholders to understand the cost of security. Yeah, Jason, I was very intrigued with you just mentioned the bunker mentality versus flexibility and creativity from the NGO. 
also as you mentioned uh, pounding uh, it's a it's a quite big problem but rest assured that in other area of the world and one in which i'm basically spending most of my time studying that is the chinese private security sector one of the first grievance from the chinese private security company is the fact uh, that funding for security is the last item on the budget from state-owned enterprises to chinese private enterprises so i think funding problem is quite a diffuse problem and another key part that you just mentioned is training. So you, you say that security risk management planning is a process that needs a multidisciplinary approach. And your organization specifically provide a very effective, and in my personal opinion, very well-received toolkit, is security to go. Could you briefly present this tool and especially some application case study? So, um, for so for a case study, uh, I, I, well, let me explain the tool first. So, we have lots of different tools on our site, um, on, on the GISF site. Um, and one of them is Security to Go, and and yeah, like you mentioned, it's it's an excellent fourteen module guide that helps um, you know program those working in humanitarian programs identify you know uh, key security needs. Um, it is it's it's meant to help um organizations establish risk management systems in emergency settings so it's not necessarily a like a, a um a top to bottom comprehensive security risk management guide uh but it is applicable to you know in all settings in in for to international uh organizations or locally run organizations there's uh and, and one of the modules in that guide actually is engaging with security providers uh so there's it, it addresses a lot of key issues. And I've spoken to a lot of smaller NGOs that have uh, told me that they've used it uh, repeatedly in different contexts. So it's a, it's a go-to guide for them. Um, another guide that's very, that's quite similar, but much more comprehensive is our security risk management guide for smaller NGOs. Although to be fair, I think it's uh, relevant for any size. Um, uh, but it, it's it's more it's more comprehensive and it can be used to establish a stronger security risk management program and it and it goes from top to bottom. So the security to go guide doesn't um, necessarily get into um, full organizational security risk management systems, but for the SRM guide, it gets into you know framework of accountability and helping you establish the the upper echelon of those programs that helps. Um, um, solidify security risk management as a as a as a function of the organization, so that they can uh, you know work in all the different challenging environments that we work in. Sorry, my computer. I had a quick um, follow up question to that. Uh, in regard to uh, like beyond beyond uh, providing these toolkits. Is one of the roles that just provide is connecting NGOs to service security service providers as well, and um, and if 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 that is the case, or even if you are sort of suggesting best practices to NGOs in choosing the service providers, how do you go about doing that in in high risk areas where there might not be many companies willing to go there or many security service companies willing to go there? I mean, um, you know, we were earlier having discussion of about uh, Eric's Prince and, and of Blackwater Company and the, the report that came about his involvement in Libyan civil war. Um, 
so so when when news like these come out about a certain security provider what what uh, protocols or what what kind of actions can you take in assuaging the ngo sectors that might be involved in in partnering with them yeah i mean that's a, that's a great question and there's no doubt that there are serious risks attached to um, engaging with those types of actors. Um, you know, I, I, I was in Baghdad in 2003 and I, you know, and then in Jordan after that, and I saw lots of those stories kind of surface in the very beginning. Um, and I, you know, I, it, it's, it's a serious challenge, but um, as you know, I, like we said, massive reputational risks attached to those types of services. And, and I, but I don't think a lack of those services is gonna be seen as an acceptable excuse to engage with them just for the purpose of staying and delivering uh, programs to those populations. So, uh, you know, these groups are seen to be, or known to be uh, in breach of ICOCA standards or, you know, basic humanitarian practices that don't align with, uh, with our core values or the core values of the organizations that uh, engage their services. Um, yeah, there's, I don't think there's gonna be uh, any, any um, acceptable excuse to be able for those organizations if things go wrong it, it's it, I just it, it's not going to work out um, you have to do your due diligence you have to do your background checks and you have to talk with you know all the different stakeholders you can to find out um, if this is if this is adequate um, and yeah it, it's it's a serious risk uh, but in some cases like we said already it, it might be mandated by the local government uh, and that makes it that much more challenging. In those cases, I would, you know, if they do decide to accept those risks and they do decide to go into the programming and accept those services from these groups, then they're going to have to stay on top of it and be very um, aware of the daily activities and make sure that they have some sort of monitoring um, and, you know, maybe a complaint hotline or something that they can make available to the local population so that there's some sort of feedback, feedback mechanism that's available to those communities so that if things do go wrong, those local communities can reach out to that NGO and let them know that things are, 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 are not right. Can I just do a small follow-up question on that? Um, it, it comes to me, I mean, I, I, I grew up in Pakistan and one of the issues with the NGO sector over there was that there was always these rumors and conspiracies of them being involved in, in, in secretive operations and they're sort of undercover agents of some sorts. And which often mm -hmm. puts NGOs at very high risk situations. And I mean, I'm guessing like when it's involved in, when when you have security service providers working for NGOs, sort of people, you know, armed, that risks becomes even more heightened. So how do you deal with this specific risk of NGOs being considered as as you know secret agents or spies or how how you know like uh, openness? How how does that how does that work? Yeah, I mean that's another great point. <laughs> and to be fair. Half my neighbors think the same thing um, of me, uh, and it's it's it is something that you have to be. Uh, you just have to be. You have to treat it with the respect it deserves. To be fair, uh, I, I I might find it laughable, but it, you know, at the end of the day, if we're operating in those environments, um, you know, we have to we have to take those types of perceptions seriously. Um, you know, I think some of the activities that we do that you know. You know, for example, I've spoken about actor mapping and stakeholder analysis. Those types of activities, you know, if someone gets a hold of a sheet of paper that we were doing, you know, maybe doing an exercise on to find out who we should be engaging with, and they get a hold of that, they might say, oh, what is this? You were taking notes of all the different groups. 
Um, and that's not, that's just not the case, but it doesn't, we still have to be cognizant of the fact that that's the perception. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, using handheld radios is another situation where we might think that that might be taken out of context. There's a lot of things that humanitarians do or that anybody in those environments do uh, when they don't come from there, they, they're, they're regarded as a suspicious. So, you know, in order to overcome those types of things, um, you know, it's, it's a multifaceted approach to, to, to work, to, to, you know, to achieve a better outcome. And one of them is engaging with the population, local communities, the stakeholders that might hold those perceptions, um, you know, being very transparent about what we have and what we do and what our methods are. Um, you know, also training to build awareness with the staff members who are deploying to these areas and even our local staff members and our, the national staff members that we work with, our, our local partners, we have to train and build awareness that some of our activities are perceived uh, to be this way. Um, and, you know, but, you know, we can't just dismiss it and laugh it off. It is serious and, and sometimes it can have very serious repercussions. So it ha we have to factor it into our acceptance approach when we're trying to achieve Acceptance, we have to understand that some of those perceptions from the local community might be that we, uh, like you said, that there's an intel situation there. But, you know, intel gathering, working for foreign parties, uh, it, it's antithetical to what we stand for as humanitarians. Uh, so it doesn't happen. But that doesn't mean we, we shouldn't take it seriously. No, thank you, Jason, for this answer. I think we can go on for hours to talk about perception uh, and the role of intelligence for daily security and intelligence gathering for a, for a third party. But now uh, we have been basically focusing our discussion on physical security. I would like to move to an important part of security that is the one in the cyberspace and is increasing not only on the news, but is an increasing problem even for NGO operating abroad. If you look uh, at the part of the world where we are based here in Singapore, private military security company, let's say with the exception of anti-piracy, uh, looks like a very far, far away issue. Nevertheless, cybersecurity is becoming a growing concern, especially considering the prominence of Singapore as a financial and high technological hub in East Asia. Uh, during the last year, COVID-19 reminded us not only the importance of personal hygiene, but also the extreme importance of digital hygiene. And I say this because COVID-19 showcased the centrality of IT and also his own internal fragility. So from uh, an aid work perspective, what does uh, GISF suggest as a digital security risk mitigation process for NGO? And we can start with problem with hacking, ransomware, and then uh, we can look at the safety of app communication and the communication channel uh, that they can fail prey of unscrupulous regime, criminal organization, or even terrorists. Yeah, and, that, and that's, that's, this is a huge issue, Alex. I mean, digital and, uh, digital and physical security, they certainly overlap. So um, they don't, they're not the same, of course. Uh, and, and, and in fact, from, with many organizations, they actually sit with different, uh, with different chiefs or different directors in, in different departments. But uh, they definitely, they overlap. And I see a lot of former um, colleagues actually working in the private sector, um, handling digital security for some of the organizations they work with. Um, so th there's definitely an overlap. But uh, although we're not, you know, experts in digital risk, 
um, the security managers, the safety and security managers need to address this and it needs to be incorporated and considered in, in, in their policies and their training. Um, you know, so, so the guidance will still come from IT on how we should behave with our devices. Um, and you know, they will release most of the training. So most NGOs and just about everybody these days has internal IT training to help people be aware of ransomware, phishing attacks, um, and all those types of incidents. And you know, that's done on a yearly basis for the most part. But um, we have to still consider how we couple it with the training that we deliver uh, with, within the, you know, the, the, the main safety and security component. So um, the other thing to consider is the tech, uh, the, the devices that we use in the field. We have to consider you know, what's required and what can put you at risk. You know, even the use of sat phones in some areas will can put you can get you arrested, frankly. Uh, so it's something to be considered. Um, and so travel with devices is also becoming, you know, much more, uh, much more of a challenge. It, it, it has been for years, actually, maybe the last decade, I've, we've seen a spike in types of arrests or denied entry for people going to certain countries uh, based on, you know, how they might, you know, deny the Customs and Border Patrol agents access to their cell phone or their laptops. So these things are all uh, something that need to be considered when you're traveling abroad. Um, and with that, you know, some of the unintended consequences of our response to those is to try, you know, we travel with white devices or clean devices or whatever you want to call them, just to make sure we don't take our private material with us when we travel to some contexts. But that, of course, raises suspicion as well when you when you show up with a, a device that has nothing on it. Uh, so that, that can get you locked up. Um, so, you know, another it's just another situation where we have to be incredibly thoughtful and understand uh, the legal implications. Uh, you know, we have to understand where we're traveling to, what the perceptions are there, what the um, expected behaviors are. Um, and, you know, it goes, you know, there's also the social media element to this, how we behave on social media. Um, there's, there's all kinds of implications with the digital security here. You know, from the GISF perspective, we, you know, we try to aid our members by, you know, putting together uh, guides and training on this. So we have, we have several different publications to, to assist our members with this, um, in addition to what they probably have uh, internally. But we have, you know, communications technology and humanitarian uh, delivery. We have uh, within the security to go guide, uh, th that document, there's a module on digital security. And we also partnered with the uh, Disaster Ready on a security risk management toolkit on digital security. Um, and, you know, all those guides can be found on gisf.ngo. And there's lots of other materials that are there as well. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's, it's a massive challenge and, uh, but there's lots of training out there to, for, for, for all of our partners, uh, members and non-members to, to go to our site and use for, for their benefit. Thank you so much, um, for, for, for that, for that response. I mean, I mean, you know, it's the, finding the balance between some of these things, what you're talking about, it, it can't be an easy project and, you know, so it, it, and it, maybe it makes it very interesting at least intellectually in trying to figure out and playing with the, the puzzles in the end i want to ask you a question and put you in a bit of a spot and ask you to sort of you know shoot in the air by asking a question that we've been asking all of our guests and that is in your opinion what will the future of risk and security management in a complex environment look like in the coming 30 years perhaps you can answer this in regards to the security management with regards to the ngo sector specifically so, yeah, within the NGO sector specifically, the next 30 years is, uh, 
I mean, if I judge it on the last 10 years, it's, uh, it's quite interesting. Um, but there's a lot of different issues uh, that can be looked at, you know, from now that are already headed in a very challenging direction. Uh, we have lots of risk multipliers like climate change, population growth, um, outbreaks. We have the pandemic now, of course, that's, uh, you know, demonstrated us, um, how challenging it can be once we get cut off from travel and uh, you know, we, we can't be in those areas to deliver. Um, extremism is on the rise. Uh, we have uh, geopolitical influences are shifting in the, in the areas that we operate now, um, which is, which, which is going to create some challenges in the years to come. So we also, with that geopolitical influence, there's some shifts in the way that some of these countries operate and some of the environments we operate in. Um, you know, it's countries that they may not even be authoritarian by nature, but they're adopting you know, technology and practices that um, could be viewed as somewhat authoritarian. Lots of surveillance happening around the world in different places. Um, and this is gonna make access to humanitarian spaces a lot more difficult. Um, you know, with, you know, I mentioned outbreaks, but if you think about COVID, we've seen an acceleration of working with local partners. Um, and that sounds, you know, there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of fallout there that we have to be considerate of. Um, you know, it requires a thoughtful approach for the for any NGO that is trans. You know, working with local partners, there's a transfer of risk happening there. So we have to make sure that that's done in a in a thoughtful and and um, and responsible way, so that we don't abandon our duty of care while we're using local partners to uh, implement the programs uh, in, in in those contexts. So. And, you know, to that end, we have a guide, actually, timely guide coming out uh, on April 15th that'll help uh, organizations work with local partners. It helps them um, assess how they should handle transfer of risk, you know, to, to make sure that the duty of care is being addressed and, you know, that we're not putting uh, local partners in a situation or a predicament that's dangerous um, or, or unacceptable. Um, you know, but to be fair to the last point we just talked about, I think most of the change we're going to see almost all that impact is going to come from the digital security sector. Um, we need to be ahead of the curve on this. Uh, you know, we see what's happening now with blockchain. Uh, there's, there's, there's quite a few documents out there now on blockchain and how that can be applied to humanitarian spaces. Um, but yeah, we need to build a digital security culture um, into our security risk management practices to ensure that we adopt the right tools and the practices to be proactive as much as we possibly can, as much as we possibly can, rather than be reactive, uh, because that's what we see now. You know, if you look at blockchain technology in the financial sector, you know, regula regulators can't keep up with it, and that's fine. I mean, there's some, there's certain impact there, but when it comes to safety and security, we don't want to be caught off guard when it's gonna result in our staff members or, or the communities that we serve being impacted in a, in a very negative way. But thank you very much, Jason. When you started uh, your answer, looking at the next 30 years, uh, you quite scared me. As you mentioned, it's going to be interesting. I think you know that uh, in Asia, especially in East Asia, one of the common curse is may you live in interesting times. And I think uh, with 2020, we got uh, enough interesting times already. But then let me again, Jason, thank you very much for being with us today. And uh, also allow me to thank uh, all the Middle East Institute staff, without whom this podcast will never have been possible. Please follow us on the various social media platforms and send us your comment and feedback. We'd love to hear from you. In closing, I want to plug our net podcast with Professor Joshua Reno 
is an anthropologist with a very peculiar expertise, military waste. We are going to discuss the negative spillover of military waste, not only on Earth, but also in the space. Thank you for being with us today.